Amen. Amen, 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 amen. Amen, amen. Amen, amen. Does this have to be closer? Probably. How's that? Speaking of speaking out of Revelation, we're in a a series called Holy. And uh, this series has really been marked with such a diverse depth of understanding, of, of knowing this idea of holiness. I really love just some of the, the contributions that the various preachers have made over these weeks. Uh, and I, I love the fact that there's this ongoing mystery of the holiness of God, that it's something that we could never really fully grasp and understand. And, uh, you know, I feel like... <laughs> I feel like this morning's worship session really says it all. Uh, and, and let me just say from the start, I did not share my notes with the worship team this morning, which you'll find uncanny because the themes that came through are all in here. And you know, sometimes you feel that the simplicity of a word you know, you almost feel inadequate of, of the simplicity of concepts. And yet, it's because of that that God wants us to keep on bringing them. So speaking of speaking out of Revelation, uh, we, we see the throne. We see the idea of all the living creatures and creation. And what are they saying? Repeat, not repeat, let's just say it together. Ready? Right. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, I came across an interesting thing recently. How's the sound here? Good? Okay. I came across an interesting thing recently that in in ancient Hebrew, they had a, a kind of an expression or a way of speaking that if they they wanted to ultimatize something, they would say it three times. So, for instance, somebody might say, that is a beautiful sunrise. But if it was the most beautiful sunrise they had ever seen, they would say, that is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sunrise. And so the readers of this text would know immediately that that they were saying that the holy, holy, holy is the ultimate, utmost of holy that you could ever get. And so, this idea of holiness that spans far beyond our our comprehension, our imagination, our ability to even understand, it ends with this picture, in terms of scripture, of the utmost, holy, holy, holy. But it also begins with holiness. And we're going to take a, a, a little journey, a somewhat of a little journey around the understanding of what holy means and potentially what it does not mean. Moses saw a burning bush, caught his attention, and when God saw that his attention was on him, he spoke. And in Exodus 3 verse 5 it says, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, 
for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Why was it holy? It wasn't a particularly sacred place. It was in the desert. It wasn't the site of a temple. Nothing special had happened there before, to my knowledge. It was holy because God was there. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This was the first time that, that Moses had encountered God in his presence in this way. And it brought a reverent fear. And there's something really right about fear accompanying holiness. Because when you comprehend the holy, 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 then you realize that sin is obliterated in that, in that place. And so we understand this idea that God is holy. He is altogether perfect. He is completely other than. He is completely separate from. He is sacred. He is different. He transcends above his creation. He is eternal. And he expects us to be the same <laughs> if we are to cohabitate with him. Matthew 5 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter says, Be holy, for I am holy, quoting Leviticus. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's a concept. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I understand that part. The King James of the 2 Corinthians text says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. NIV says this, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. The English Standard Version says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We have a problem. How are we to attain the perfection and holiness that God desires? And I've found, if you're like me, you may have fallen into the trap of thinking about holiness in the wrong way, which might cause you to miss the main point. Did you notice the first part of the 2 Corinthians text that I was speaking? What did it say? It's talking about the promises of God. Beloved, my children. 
Did you hear and see that? Or did you lock onto the part about cleansing and filth and perfection and holiness and defilement? Because it's not wrong, but did you see in the light of some promises? And he even says, beloved or dear children. And sometimes it doesn't feel like we can associate with being beloved and dear children because we're focusing on the latter part. So let's find out what are the promises he's talking about. And we go to 2 Corinthians 6 for that. Starting at verse 16, and this will be in the NIV. It says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, said the Almighty God. In light of those promises, he goes on. I'll live with them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters. And in that light, the demand for holiness is made clear. So if we believe, friends, that we have to live out 2 Corinthians 7 in order to obtain the promises of 2 Corinthians 6, then we will define holiness as having to live sinless, perfect lives in order to please God. When in fact, sin has got nothing to do with holiness. And to illustrate that, I'm going to bring us to the beginning. We've talked about the end. What, what about the beginning? In Genesis 2, it says this, and this will be the first time that holiness is mentioned in the Word, in Scripture. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This mention of blessing and holiness of the Sabbath day was, was done before sin entered the world, before it ever existed. And in Mark 2 verse 27, Jesus talks about the Sabbath, and he says that the Sabbath was made for man, not, the man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so this idea of holiness being a construct, an idea, a, a sense of Godsness means that it is to be seen in a light completely apart even from sin. We should understand and see holiness as God's picture of himself 
and his intent of being able to rest, of his intent of being with him, and of his intent of being like him. It was always God's intention when he created man in his likeness that we would be like him and we would be with him and we would rest in that space. And we do know that the fall of man, when sin came, it created a separation. We do know that there was a federal uh, unhinging or a breaking of this created being's ability to be holy as his creator or her creator was. But God instituted a restoration plan immediately. And one might say that it began with Abraham, where God found Abraham and he chose him. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. It's going to be an everlasting covenant, this unbreakable promise between me and you. And even if you break it, I won't. And this, this, this covenant is going to be marked with a, with a circumcision. That's going to show how separate you are from everything and everyone. That this, this promise that I've given you, it will be a blessing to you and all your descendants. And then this institution of the covenant, this picture of having flesh cut away in order to mark that the people of God are different, that they are, that they are cleansed, that they are unique, and that they are His, passed on. And, and Moses, who we spoke about at the burning bush, was given the law of God. And, and part of that was this, this covenant ritual, this covenant understanding continuing. And, and of this idea of freeing people from Egypt and moving them into the promised land, a promised land where God's promise was, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And I'd love to go deeper into all of these things because it's so profound. But when we believe that holiness is a task to achieve, then we look to ourselves to produce holiness, which ends up in self-righteousness. Just like the religious leaders that Jesus faced. Rather, I'd like to suggest that we should see holiness as our purpose and our destined identity. Oswald Chambers wrote, we must continually remind ourselves of the purpose of life. We're not destined to happiness nor to health, but to holiness. In fact, Ephesians 1.4 says that we, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Ephesians 2 says, and 19 to 22 says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. 
this idea of a dwelling place where God created the garden and the garden came through beautifully this morning. Rodney, thank you for being um, obedient to the Spirit. That God's calling us to this idea of the garden. Why? It's a dwelling place of rest. It's a dwelling place where God himself is. Ephesians 4.24 says that we have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, we were created holy, created in his likeness, true righteousness, perfection, holiness. That was the intent of God and members of his household. Members of his household. You know, members of a household understand what their parents are like. Esther knows dad's safe. I'm a child, I'm a member of your household. John Hendricks recounts a story. He says this. A friend of mine who was raised as a missionary kid in Africa told me the true story about his missionary father who while on the road one day encountered a man who had a young boy chained to him as his slave. His father was moved and offered to purchase the boy out of slavery. The man accepted his price and so the boy went home with his new father who adopted him and raised and loved him as his very own. The gospel picture in the story should be so obvious as we too have been purchased by our Lord out of slavery and have been adopted as children of God. Now, like the boy whose chains were broken and now belong to a new family as children of God, we don't go back to our life of slavery, but now find our newfound identity in the life of our new family, and we conform our lives around that new status, not in order to become children, but because we are God's children. That status of being children cannot be improved upon. But we conform to the likeness of our new family, and we work out experientially that which we already are legally we do so not to earn our status but because it is our status Romans 6.19 says just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever increasing wickedness so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness The fullness of the Ephesians 4 scripture from verse 17 says this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are to do because of what we already are. You see, there's this constant theme that I've been coming across when I've looked into holiness. This constant theme of this idea that we are chosen, dear, beloved children. In John chapter 1, it says this, verse 12 to 14, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Isn't that incredible? This dwelling place of God, this tabernacle, that's the word that's used there. It says that Jesus made his tabernacle with man. You see, the rescue plan that God instituted from the garden through the desert into the promised land with the law and the temple culminated in him coming and tabernacling with his people. And so with this in mind, when he came to bring this fulfillment of the desire of God to be united and, and in communion and inhabitate, not a word, but I'll claim it, his people, no wonder there was a clash. No wonder there was a clash when Jesus came with the ideas and the principles of the day. And I'd like to share two instances of this clash. The first is the Sabbath, and the second is the idea of being defiled, also on the Sabbath. And so, in Matthew 12, it says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
It's the same account from Mark that we talked about and where he said that the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's an interesting thing. The Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. The Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, Jesus was encountering the belief that because the Sabbath was holy, man had to somehow protect the holiness of God by bringing control and pattern and, and routine and by making sure to maintain a certain set of rules and making sure one, two, making sure to point out where the rules had been transgressed because we have to protect the Sabbath because the Sabbath is more important than man. Actually, no. When you view the Sabbath through that lens, you realize that you're trying to attain something of that perfection and holiness. But when you see through the lens that the Sabbath is a gift to God, that it is it, it, it was a rest given, a grace gift to mankind. You see things completely differently. The second account is from Matthew 15, a little later. It says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And he goes on to talk about honoring your father and mother and saying that some of them use excuses to not honor their father and mother because of certain parts of the law. And he says, you nullify the word of God, verse 6, for the, for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. You know, defile just means to deface, to bring down, to lower, to mess with, to... He says it's not what goes into the, someone's mouth that defiles them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? I think he did know. And he, he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Jesus says, are you still so dull? Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? 
But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. You see, the Pharisees were stuck in a pattern and a belief system and a routine that emerged from the belief that they had to preserve holiness through the Sabbath and the upkeep of the temple by observing the laws. However, Jesus is getting to the idea that holiness is not an outside-in process. It's an inside-out process. It's about the heart. A man named Doug Reed wrote this, which describes something of this so well. He says, To the Jewish people, the most holy land on earth was the promised land. And the most holy land had a most holy city, Jerusalem. In the most holy city was the most holy place, the temple. In the most holy place there was a most holy court, the holiest of holies. Its name was descriptive. It was the most holy of God's sacred places. Why? Again, because God was there. It had to do with his presence. Beyond the veil, at the entrance to the holiest of all places, was the place heaven and earth met and became one. Paul said, Christ came to build a new temple, and you are a part of it. In other words, you are God's chosen habitation. Your life is the place you and God live together. The place where the finite and the infinite are one. How can you not be holy? Hebrews 9 and 10 talk beautifully around this idea of the old covenant picture being a, a foreshadowing of the one to come. And in Hebrews 10, it says this, Then he, Jesus, said, Here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It goes on to describe that the Holy Spirit testifies in this regard as well. And that the laws are written on our hearts and our minds. It goes on to say that he will remember our sins no more. Then verse 19 it says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, 
Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Isn't it a powerful thing to think that we can enter the Sabbath rest, which is Jesus? That the intention of God from beginning in Genesis was holy to the end in Revelation is holy, holy, holy. That we once and for all have come into that holiness perfect holiness and I was reminded of a an image we might look at ourselves and think through the lens of sin and through the lens of defilement we might look at ourselves and think I'm just a, a black lump of coal dirty useless and Ray Manises pointed out the other day to me that the only difference between a black lump of coal and a diamond is time, heat, and pressure. And when we see the gracious provision of God to give us the environment needed to bring out our purpose and destiny, then we realize that by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see, it's already who we are. And it's who we're becoming. We realize it's already done, and yet it's being done. And you know, friends, we might find ourselves in the hands of a master jeweler who finds a diamond in the rough, Nothing special to the untrained eye. And he might get a bit of dirt, rock, take out some of the things, the impurities, and he would look at it. And he would, he would weigh it up and he would see its value. And then he would carefully start to polish and buff and start to break off and start to cut, a bit like a circumcision, cut off that which doesn't fit his picture of the perfection that it holds. And that he would start to hone it and, and shape it and look at it. And then suddenly, in the hands of the master jeweler, suddenly the brilliance and the shine and the value of that lump of dirty black coal can fulfill its purpose. You see, it was always there, but it was a process. And perhaps like Moses, every one of us might find ourselves, wherever we may be, at a burning bush. And perhaps we might take our shoes off because the holy, holy, holy is there. And wherever we find our feet, we find the holiness of God. 
I don't know where you're at. But if you're like me, perhaps you've pursued holiness uh, out of this, uh, your own strength, out of your own sense of having to achieve and attain. Thinking that it's a demand that we have to fulfill. Thinking and not knowing that Christ has already fulfilled it. Perhaps you might find yourself defiled because of the matters of the heart that Jesus spoke of. The selfish des desires that proceed out of our hearts. Perhaps it's an identity issue. Feeling like you have to attain some sort of standard of holiness before God can receive you. Or perhaps it's a belief issue. Being stuck in the futility of our thinking and the hardness of our heart. Unaware that you've been created after the likeness of God. Just to be like Him. To be holy. To be perfect. To be with Him. And to enter His rest. Justin, I'd love you to just come and, and play a simple song. And I felt like God might be repeating three times some things that we've heard. He might be repeating three times some things that we might know. But it's for a reason. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to set us free into the fullness of understanding, the fullness of our hearts, knowing that we are dearly loved children, the fullness of knowing that, yes, we live holy lives, but not to attain, but because of. It's a natural flow. And so I'd invite you to stand.